0: So in just a minute the kids are going to be dismissed but first see Dakota and Heather if you guys would would come on up and uh, the rest of the elders
1: we're going to recognize and welcome into membership uh, Dakota and Heather Uh, they came to us and were interested in uh, becoming members and so we kind of the process is that they just meet with us we kind of explain to them a little bit about what that means from our standpoint And answer any questions that they might have. And so we're just excited to commend them to you as uh, new members at Creekside Church. And we're going to ask them after the service to kind of hang out after there so you can greet them and meet them and talk to them and that sort of stuff. Right now we're just going to pray. I'm going to ask Bob if you would just uh, pray for them. Would you do that?
0: Sure. Father, we give thanks for Dakota and Heather and their family. And just thank you for their contributions to... The church of God here at Creekside, and I just pray that you would uh, bless them as they seek to use their gifts for you and, and to um, identify with, with Creekside and accountability and service, and just pray for us as a congregation to support them in the way that um, your church should do to one another, and we just thank you for them and ask your blessing on them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Give you an update uh, briefly on the Easter egg hunt preparations. Next Saturday is the work day for filling eggs and passing out invitations. So a lot of you have signed up for that. If you didn't get an email from me and you did sign up, let me know. But uh, we take walk-ins. So at 10 o'clock Saturday morning, we'll begin working on that. Um, We do need some volunteers especially to go from door to door to hand out invitations. And I've, I've found that for me, that's like getting out of the work because everybody else is here working stuffing eggs, and, and I get to go walk around the neighborhood, um, but I've, I've found that not everybody looks at it that way, and they think it's a scary job, but I will tell you that when you go to somebody's house and offer a free Easter egg hunt, they're usually pretty friendly about it, so um, nothing to be afraid of, and I've never been bit by a dog or anything, so anyway, it, I've, I've tried to do some estimating counting of the candy and eggs that have come in this morning but it's just it's been kind of a a futile job to to count things as they flow in and the tubs fill Um, I should have brought an actuary to to the job but I think as far as I can tell we have just over 4,000 eggs gathered or collected contributed Um, and then over 80 pounds of candy with financial contributions that should add another 20 pounds, so we're up to about 100 pounds of candy contributions, which means we've got about 1,900 eggs and 60 pounds of candy to go, but we're, we're looking really good and just appreciate, I mean, just from up here, there's not that many people here to be contributing that much candy and eggs, so I really appreciate everybody's generosity in that and the contributions are continuing to come in, so thank you. Um, And don't forget to keep praying over these next couple weeks that uh, our neighbors would come in with hearts that have been prepared by the Spirit of God to receive the gospel of God as as it goes out. And most of all, we're not doing this just for candy and and sugar and, and holiday celebrations. We're doing it for the gospel of Jesus Christ because that's what makes a difference in our neighbors' lives. And so that's what we want to bring to them. So thank you. And I should also not fail to mention that today is Ruth Brahm's birthday, so uh, give her a happy birthday if you happen to see her afterwards.
1: Well, I'm kind of excited about the Easter egg hunt and our opportunity to get out into the community and have the community come to us. And so I just really want to challenge you. Uh, There are a stack of invitations out there. You don't have to wait till Saturday to start inviting people. I hope and pray that in your neighborhood, you will already start to invite some people. In your neighborhood, your friends, your family. So take some invitations and pass them out. And pray for God to work in people's hearts and lives and minds. Pray about candy. Walking through the aisles at wherever you shop and uh, grab a big ba- bag of candy and make sure it's the right kind, you know, individually wrapped, that kind of stuff. And some eggs, you know, buy some eggs. We need some more. So uh, by God's grace, many of you have been generously given, some of the rest of us, uh, maybe not so much, so we can get on board and, and take part in it. Uh, before we look into the Word, I'm just going to, uh, got some, some families on my heart, and again, I'm not intentionally... It's dangerous to do this because sometimes when you pray for specific individuals and other people feel badly that you didn't pray for them. But I'm going to pray for a few in our church family that I know are going through some physical challenges. I'm going to lift them up right now. So I ask you just to join me in prayer. And Father, I just come to you, the God of all grace and the God of all comfort, the great physician who has power. You created our bodies. You're able to bring healing and strength to them. And so I just pray right now for uh, Brian and Jody uh, Nicolette, and Nicolette. And I know that you know the physical challenges that they're facing along with some other stuff. But I pray that your spirit would work powerfully to bring healing to their bodies. That you would give them comfort and encouragement in the midst of their trials and grace and mercy to press ahead in joy in the midst of these trials, that they would be able by your grace and by your Spirit's power to count it all joy when they fall into various trials. I pray for for Mary and ask that uh, you'd work in her back pain, that you would bring relief and comfort, encouragement there. I ask that you'd work in her heart and, and marks that they would be able to trust you and to, in the middle of pain, find peace. I pray for Carol, that you'd bring continued healing and restoration to her body as well. And Lord, you know uh, that there are others. I pray for Vern and ask that his uh, shoulder surgery, that you'd give him recovery as well. And now, Lord, as we turn to your truth, I pray that you would bring spiritual health and strength to those of us who know you. I pray that you would bring new life to those who don't, by the power of your Spirit working in us through your word, we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Last year at about this time, I was visiting with one of my best friends, and he had just returned from visiting with a man that he knew, and this man had gone into a remote area of a Middle Eastern country. And while he was in this remote area, this Middle Eastern country, this man had gone into this village and he was there to talk to them about Jesus. He was a little bit afraid because in a lot of these places they don't really want to hear about Jesus. And the village chief came up to him and he said, we'd like you to... Speak tonight, and we'll come. And they had a tent set up, and it wasn't a really big tent, but there was a small tent set up, and there were 60 people that packed into this little tent who heard the gospel of Jesus Christ for the very first time. The next day he got up, and, and many of those people had responded positively to the gospel. And he got up the next day ready to leave, and the village chief came to him, and he thought, oh boy, I'm in big trouble now. And the village chief says, we want you to to speak to us again tonight. And so he came that night. He delayed his plans. He came that night to the same small tent. The same small tent was filled with 60 different people who heard the gospel for the very first time. And many responded. Just this past week, I was visiting with another dear friend of mine about a mutual ministry partner that we have in another country, and this man had taken some men from his church out on a Sunday afternoon into the, a remote area of their country, and they shared the gospel, and 38 people made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And it, Yeah, amen. Okay, it's, it's, not, it's okay to say amen in Creekside Church, okay? That, that works, all right? It works for me. If it doesn't work for you, then we can talk later. But uh, uh, it's kind of easy. It's in the Bible. Okay? So as I listened to these testimonies, I believed what I was hearing. As I listened to the testimonies, I was encouraged by what I was hearing about the way God was working in these places. And then as I heard these testimonies, I was kind of juiced up about how God could use me and and us and, and other people who are believers in the ministry of the gospel, wherever we're at. I was like, wow, this is God's work. And I thought, if these testimonies of men about how God's working have that effect on me, then how much more should I be encouraged by and motivated by and challenged by the very testimony of God himself? what God has to say. Last week, we looked in 1 John 5, verses 1-5, through how John laid out for us that world champions are those who overcome the world, gain victory over the world, sin and death and the devil, because we believe in the Son. We're overcomers because of what Christ has done in and through us. And we want to carry that message to a lost and dying world. Now today, as we move on into chapter 5 and verses 6 through 12, John shows us that our initial and ongoing faith in the Lord Jesus is rooted and grounded and firmly planted in our acceptance of the testimony that God gives concerning His Son Jesus. That we're not just sharing stuff and believing stuff that is hocus-pocus or that's pie in the sky, but it's grounded in the truth of what God has testified to in a number of different ways. And so I invite you to 1 John chapter 5, verses 6-12. through 12. We're going to look at three ways in which God's testimony, three ways God's testimony about His Son educates and motivates us to believe and accept who His Son is and then to live for Him. That He is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. I'm going to read the text and then we'll begin to unpack these three different ways that God wants to use this testimony to educate and motivate us. 1 John chapter 5, beginning with verse 6. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with water only, but with the water and with the blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that bear witness the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, for the witness of God is this that he has borne witness concerning his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. The one who does not believe in God, believe God, has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the witness that God has borne concerning his Son. And the witness is this, that God has given to us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. And he who has the Son has the life. And he who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Nine times in these verses we read the word witness. It's about a witness. Interesting, in some churches, you know, it's, do I have a witness? You know, they, they, they say that. Do I have a witness? And then somebody says, Amen. You know, they're, 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 they're testifying. They're agreeing with them. Here we have the witness. And we begin, first of all, in verses 5 and 6, with God's testimony. God's testimony confirms to us. The reality, the certainty of Jesus' true identity. God's testimony confirms to us the certainty of Jesus' testimony. And there are two considerations that give us reason for this confirmation. First of all, he declares Jesus' identity. Verse 6. But he does so in a rather strange way. Okay? We read the text. It says, this is. Is the one speaking of Jesus, the Son of God, from verse 5? We didn't just land in verse 6. We've been watching through the text, so you have to understand the context. The Son of God, this is the one, the Son of God, Jesus the Son of God, who came by water and the blood. Now that's kind of an odd way for us. Of understanding this. You see, to the people to whom John was writing and the initial readers, that would have been something they would have understood. It was an expression that they would have grappled with and understood completely, that's often foreign to us. When Marlo and I were on our honeymoon, we visited Mackinac Island. And while we were on Mackinac Island, we went to this fort. And on, in this fort on Mackinac Island, they had this kind of, not a total reenactment, but they kind of explained to us uh, about the battles in the first century and the colonial battles and stuff. And the guys had this gun, and it was like this long rifle, you know. And the way you arm a long rifle is you have to manually pull the hammer back, okay? But the hammer has two positions the first position is only half cocked. And the second position is fully cocked. And when it's in the fully cocked position, then and only then will the trigger release and fire the, the, the round. But if it's in the half cocked position, it could go off at any time. And so we have thus the expression, don't go off half cocked. Well, many of us have heard you know, many of you go, I don't know, I've never heard that expression. I don't know. Well, it, it, half-cocked is foreign to us because we don't understand what it's about. The water and the blood is kind of an odd expression for us to refer to the sun. But John's statement introduces the first two elements. There are three elements to this witness of God. God's witness contains three elements. The first two are revealed here. First, the water... Then the blood, the historical experiences of the water, which is the baptism of Jesus, and the blood, which is the crucifixion of Jesus, that's how I understand this expression, testify to the reality of Jesus as the God-man. Fully God, fully man. Now, baptism then and now was and is A public declaration and a public demonstration of the person's internal repentance of their sins and trust in Christ, or at least their repentance. You have to go back to, you know, John and John baptizing Jesus, and he goes, "Well, Jesus wasn't sinful, so why did he get baptized?" If you're thinking, you know, if baptism is a demonstration and declaration of repentance and Jesus was sinless, then why was he baptized? He was baptized to identify with us as human beings in our baptism and in obedience to the Father. If you look at Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, which we're going to put up on the screen. And after being baptized, I was just hoping that your vision of it was bigger than mine. And after being baptized... Jesus went up immediately from the water and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him. And behold, the voice out of heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We have not only the confirmation of God the Father on the Son through the spirits descending on him. But we have the commendation of God the Father towards the Son. Is my beloved son. So that was through his baptism, declaring and demonstrating that he is indeed the Son of God, the Savior of the world. No question, no doubt. This is the first, wit- first element of the witness. Second is the blood. The blood is his death, uh, the crucifixion of Jesus. And the death of Jesus was attended by numerous significant miracles, all of them individually and then obviously cumulatively testifying to his reality as the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Matthew chapter 26, you can read it later, or 27. Matthew chapter 27, we understand and read from verses verse 45 on, that at the crucifixion of Jesus, there was darkness. I mean, deep darkness, like nighttime darkness in the middle of the day for three hours. And after the darkness... Then the veil of the temple was torn in two. This is a heavy, thick curtain, just like ripped like a piece of paper. Then there was an earthquake and shaking of the ground. And then the tombs were opened and dead people started walking around in town. That freaked him out. All of them testifying that this is the Son of God. But in our text, if we read verse 6, this is the one who came by water and the blood, then the end of it says, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. You kind of go, well, okay, so this is kind of an unnecessary redundancy. No. It was an intentional repeating to emphasize that it wasn't just with the water, it wasn't just with the baptism, but it was with the baptism and the crucifixion that God was testifying that Jesus is the Son of God. Why? Context. We've talked about these Gnostics, the knowing ones, the intellectuals of the day who believed that they knew everything and what they knew was all that was important. And these people, one branch of them, taught that the Spirit of God came upon Jesus at his baptism. But that he left Jesus, the Spirit of God, that God himself left Jesus prior to the crucifixion. But what does John say? No. The witness of God is that Jesus is the Son of God In his baptism at the beginning of his ministry and in his crucifixion at the end of his ministry, throughout his ministry, Jesus was, and he still is, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, fully human, fully God, when he died on the cross. Why is that important? Because if Jesus was only a man when he died on the cross, then he died to pay the price for his own sins. Period. But if he was fully God, then his sacrifice becomes the atoning sacrifice for the sins of all people who would believe and trust and turn to him. He becomes the atoning sacrifice. Only then could a sinless son of God die and pay the price that you and I deserve to pay. Otherwise, he'd have to pay for just his own sin. And so here we have Jesus, the Son of God. Divinity was necessary for him to conquer sin, to him to conquer death, and to rise again. John Stott put it this way, If the Son of God did not take to himself our nature in his birth and our sins in his death, he cannot reconcile us to God. If as the corinthians again not the Corinthians, if the Corinthians. Were, tr- were accurate, and, and Jesus had the Spirit of Christ on him only at his baptism, but not at his death, then you and I are dead meat. End of story. This was Jesus says. If Christ has not been raised, or Paul says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, we're of all men most to be pitied. We're still in our sins. But he has been raised from the dead. He is the Son of God, died for our sins, and rose again to prove he had victory over sin and death. That's important for those of us who show up on Sunday morning. That's important for those who don't show up on Sunday morning because they need a Savior from their sins. We need a Savior from our sins. If we only have a man who died on a cross and died on a tree, then we are of all men most to be pitied. But the witness of God is that He is the Son of God through His baptism and through His crucifixion. Fully God and fully man. And any other Jesus that is proclaimed to you and me is a lie. Any other teaching about Jesus that falls short of him being fully God and fully man is absolute heresy and is not to be followed. Then we have not only the declaration of his identity, but the confirmation of his identity. And that is the third element of God's witness in verse 7. And it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is the truth. As I read through this, I was just thinking this is an aside. All for free. The truth. Who is the truth? Jesus is the truth. I am the way and the truth. The Spirit is the truth. Well, well, Here's your philosophy class. If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C, okay? So, if the Spirit is the truth and the truth is Jesus, then the Spirit is Jesus, they're equal. Isn't it interesting that in some versions of the Bible, verse 7 is translated and it says there are three witnesses. There is the Father, there is the Word, and there is the Spirit. And this rendering of that verse is generally dismissed by scholars. And some of you may have that verse in your Bible, but then there's a footnote or there's an asterisk or there's an italicized thing. Why so? Because in, back when King James wanted to, the versions translated into English from another translation, he wanted to translate it in English, Erasmus was the translator, and Erasmus was a guy who said, if I... Find a verse. If somebody can show me a manuscript that has a verse that proves the Trinity, then I'll include it in the Bible. Well, so somebody wrote a verse. And Erasmus, true to his word, put it in the Bible, the King James Version in the Bible. Problem is, it's not in any of the older manuscripts. And the fact is, it's not even needed to prove the Trinity. In fact, if the Spirit is the truth, and Jesus is the truth, then it seems to me that the Spirit and Jesus are linked together as part of the Godhead. And nobody would deny that God is truth. So, there you have it. So it's not really a verse that we need to prove the Trinity, but there it was and there it is in some people's Bibles. But the Spirit is the truth. He's the source of truth. He's the revealer of truth, of all truth. In John chapter 16, verse 13, it says, And he, the Spirit of truth, will make known to you what you should say. Jesus speaking to his disciples. But particularly in our Of importance to us I think this morning is and I want you to look at John chapter 15 verse 26 and we'll have it up on the screen when the helper comes that's the spirit of God Holy Spirit whom I will send to you Jesus speaking from the father that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father what will he do he'll bear witness of me He'll testify to me. He'll testify that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. So there you have it. You have the water, you have the blood, and you have the Spirit testifying of who Jesus is. We can trust the testimony of the Spirit. Let's just pretend that I'm a telemarketer phone call person and I call your home number whether that's a cell phone or not, and you answer the phone and I say, Hi, uh, this is Steve. I'm calling from your credit card company. And I just, oh, no problem. Your credit card is fine. There's no problem with your credit card. But I just wanted to let you in on an offer that will reduce the interest rate that you pay on your credit card. I just need to gather a little bit of information first. I hope you're thinking, No, I'm not giving you any of my information. This is not true. Not true. Not true but when the spirit of god and the word or the water and the blood testify as part of god's witness it is absolutely true the spirit's testimony concerning jesus has two audiences the spirit's testimony concerning jesus convicts the unbeliever of sin this is john chapter 6 16 i'm sorry verses 8 through 11 And he, the Spirit of truth, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. Convict us of sin because we're sinners. (laughs) Convict us of righteousness because he, the Son of God, is righteous and of judgment that's coming upon those who don't trust in the Son. He convicts us, unbelievers, leading to conversion. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. It says, That therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit of God. You cannot be here this morning and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord unless the Spirit of God dwells within you. The Spirit of God convicts unbelievers of sin. But the Spirit of God has a testimony to believers. He comforts believers. You have your Bibles open in 1 John? Look at chapter 3, verse 24. We've covered this ground, but I want to remind you of it. And the one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And we know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Remember, some of you know this song. The little phrase is, you ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. You know, I remember, I remember as a, a kid hearing that song, and i thinking, oh, that's kind of dorky. You know, I mean, that's kind of like, well, what kind of, I mean, he lives in my heart? I mean, re- come on, give me a break. Uh, this is not very intellectually solid, right? Well, here's the verse. 1 John chapter 3, verse 24. The Spirit testifies. And then in chapter 5, the Spirit testifies. The Spirit confirms the reality of who Jesus is and comforts every believer because proving that we are His children. You ask me how I know He lives? He lives within my heart. Now, Not the, you know, not the four-part chamber that's pumping blood through my veins, but my Spirit in my inner being. He lives there. Our faith rests firmly on the reality. A teaching that denies the reality of who Jesus Christ is, the effectiveness of His insufficiency of His death on the cross, is a deficient gospel that will condemn people to hell. And thus we need to get it straight. But our faith rests firmly on the truth and the reality of his sufficient sacrifice at Calvary as the price that we deserve that he paid for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He, that is God, made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin. How could that be possible if he was a mere man? It couldn't be. He had to be divine. Who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's the comfort that every believer has that we are a child of His. It's, It's the offer to others. When we come here this morning, folks, we come to surrender to and to serve and to sing praises to the only Savior in the world, Jesus Christ. And God the Father and God the Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, Son of God, the Savior of the world. Verse 8, for there are three that bear witness. There they are, the three. The water, the blood, and the spirit. Three elements of God's witness. Further validating God's testimony. Old Testament, Deuteronomy nineteen fifteen. Anything is validated on the basis of two or more witnesses. We got three. Okay, There's three. Validating who it is. Early in my pastoral ministry, I made the mistake of during premarital counseling of asking couples. I actually I actually did this, so I'm, I'm this is confession time. I would uh, have the two before me. I'd say, "Okay, face away from each other," and I give them a slip of paper and I say, "Okay, now I want you to write down yes or no. or are you being intimate?" Why I needed to know that, I'm not sure. Uh, But I felt like that was important at that time. Uh, And let me tell you, uh, when one says yes and one says no, you got a problem. It reduces somebody's credibility as going down the tubes right there, all right? Now, I don't I don't do that anymore. I just ask couples that, you know, to make a commitment before me and God that they will remain whatever their past is, that they will remain chaste until their wedding day. Okay? We got three witnesses and they all agree. And when all those three witnesses agree, there is no lack of credibility. God's testimony is good these three elements of God's witness provide an enduring and compelling testimony to the reality of who Jesus is. The Spirit, the baptism, and the crucifixion. They're screaming at you, if you do not know Jesus, this guy is the Savior of the world. And only through him will you be saved. And they're screaming at those who know Jesus, hey, you're in the family. So hang in there. God is with you and on your side. There is this confirmation of His test, uh, the testimony, the confirmation of Jesus' identity. As we move into verses 9 and 10, we see God's testimony communicates to us the gravity of accepting Jesus' identity. It's important that we accept who Jesus is. Two ways that we're made aware of how vital accepting Christ is. Look at verse 9. If we receive the witness of men... The witness of God is greater. Now, this is why I say, and I want to explain this a little bit, I say there's three elements to God's witness. Right here in verse 9, we see that it is either man's witness or God's witness. God's witness consists of the Spirit, the water, and the blood. He says there, first of all, that we see the compulsion to accept God's testimony, and the witness declaring Jesus to be the Son of God consists of those three elements. John stresses the importance of accepting the witness by using a little argument from the lesser to the greater. Okay, The lesser to the greater. And this is how he does it. If you look at verse 9, If we receive the witness of men, which is the lesser, frail, faulty, fickle people, and we believe them, I've told people before, I'll probably tell you this before, we've had three vacuum cleaner salesmen in our home. How many vacuums do you think we own? Three. I'm not proud of the fact, okay? (laughs) Several years ago, Marla and I were traveling and we were in Chicago on a layover in Uh, So we had to spend the night because uh, supposedly the flight got canceled for coming back to Des Moines, you know. So there you are. So we were uh, asking about a restaurant. We we wanted to go out to eat, so we were going out to eat, and we asked people about this restaurant, and we asked two or three different individuals, couples, and they all said, yep, that's a good one. Yep, that's a good one. Yep, that's a good one. So we went, and yep, it was a good one. We believed the testimony of Frail human being, how much more, John says, should we believe the testimony of God? Now, it's not my words, it's his. Verse 9, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. It's of greater importance, of greater significance that we listen to the testimony of God. Declaring that his son is the savior of the world then there's a consequence. There's a compulsion to do it because God's testimony is greater. Then there's a consequence of accepting it. And that's verse 10. The one who believes in the Son of God has the witness. You see, what I think John's leading to is our response to the testimony of God determines our eternal destiny. I'm going to say that again. Our response to the testimony of God determines our eternal destiny. Those who receive the witness. Now notice the one who believes God. Look at verse 9. What's the very first phrase? If we receive the witness, then verse 10, the one who believes in the Son of God, to receive the witness is to believe in the Son of God. And if we believe in the Son of God, then what's true? The witness is within us. What witness? Well, baptism's not in me. Resurrection's not in me. But the spirit of God is in me. We receive the indwelling power of the spirit, First Corinthians chapter 12 verse 13. "For by one spirit we're all baptized into one body. We receive the Spirit of God who comes to live and dwell within us. In Romans chapter eight, verse 16, you can look that up. He's, he's in us, okay? The Spirit of God dwells in us. Every believer has the witness within the spirit convincing me that I am a child of God, even when what? Go back to chapter 3, and it says, when we doubt, when we're convicted, the Spirit of God is what? God is greater than what condemns us. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. When, our, when in our mind we're going, nah, I'm a dirtbag. I know I shouldn't do that. Ah, oh, what a knucklehead I am. Why do I keep making the same stupid mistake and the Spirit of God says, yeah, that was stupid, but you're still my child. You're still my child. You're still my child. So knock it off, would you? The consequence. You see, good news. If the Spirit of God dwells within me, what great news for the child of God, but what A terrible thing for those who don't know Jesus. If we reject the testimony, the the one who does not believe, the one who believes God has a spirit living in him, the one who does not believe the Son of God, what? Makes God out to be a liar. That's not a good thing. Okay, So in case you're confused, it's not a good thing to call God a liar. It makes us guilty of blasphemy. Heinous sin against God that's deserving of Judgment. I was, Marla and I were in uh, a foreign country and we were staying in a hotel. We were there uh, doing some ministry. And on good authority, I had it that you could drink the water in this hotel in this foreign country because it wouldn't harm you. Okay. Yeah, I drank the water and it, no, it didn't harm me. But had I not drank the water, had we not chosen to drink the water, what in effect would we have been saying about those who were the good authority? You're lying. You're lying. To reject God's testimony that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the only one who can save us from eternal damnation because of our sin, the only one who can provide purpose and meaning and lasting value in our life, the only one who can solve really what ails us and cure what ails us is the Son of God. Receiving God's Son delivers us from sin, the power of sin, the penalty of sin, and ultimately the presence of sin, death, and hell. Rejecting it, rejecting the testimony brings all that to us. His identity is confirmed. God's witness testifies, confirms the identity. God's testimony communicates the gravity of it. And then finally, God's testimony conveys the security of trusting Jesus personally. Verse 11. And the witness is this. What's the witness? The witness is this. The witness to be received is eternal life through the Son. That's what he says. Only those who trust in Jesus. But the purpose of God's testimony... The the testimony itself is its only life through trusting in the Son, but the purpose of the testimony is that all believers would trust the Son and gain life. You ever stop to think about what is eternal life? Well, it's, you know, kind of that continuation of life when this life is over. Yes, it is that, but it's much more than that. It's much more than the chronological perpetuation of life. Oh no, it's more than that. Eternal life is given individually to believers as a glorious participation in Christ's everlasting life through our union with Christ by faith. Now, that's a mouthful. But it basically says we share in the life of Christ. Who was and is and is to come. Who always was. We share in that eternal life. If we're trusting he who has the son has the life. Everlasting life. Romans chapter 4 or 6 verse 4. Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death. In order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the father. So we too might. Walk in newness of life. Might walk in newness of life when we receive Christ, not at the end of this life when we get to heaven. No, it's now. I don't know about you, but for so much of my life, I I always thought, well, you know, it's kind of like that tacked on part, that eternal life thing. But it's life now. It's eternal life now. I live in Christ. Christ lives in me. That means That his grace, his love, his kindness, his forgiveness, his gentleness, his forgiveness, his power over sin is in us. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new is come. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That's not just for Paul. That's for every child of God. He lives in me. He lives in you. Now, I don't know about you. That, that's reason to get juiced up. So when I act like a knucklehead, it's not me. And I'm forgiven. And I have grace and power to live. I can be all that God wants me to be. It's not Nike. It's not be all you can be in you. It's be all you can be in me. In Jesus. That's eternal life. It's now. It begins the moment we put our trust or our faith in Jesus. I remember sitting in a class in college, I don't know, 400 students in Western civilization, atheist professor Joe Fox. And I remember him talking to one of the students after. He says, I get sick and tired of telling you Christians what you believe. You believe that eternal life begins now. And I thought... I'd been a Christian for like six or seven years or whatever, and it took me until an atheist professor in college told me what I believed to understand that eternal life begins now, the moment I trust Christ. How terrible is that? I don't want that to happen in the churches that I am. I want you to know it begins now. And it is union with Jesus. It's union with Christ. And it is a gift. He who has the Son has the life. And it's not something you and I deserve. It's not something we earn. It's something that God gives. And so we don't walk around saying, "Well, aren't I some special dude because Jesus saved me. No, you are a scumbag. And you just better be grateful that Jesus saved you because you owe your very life to. And I want other beggars to know where I found bread. And so that's why we do an Easter egg hunt. And that's why we share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because life becomes ours only through faith in the Son. It's a gift. It only becomes ours through faith in the Son. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? He said to Martha. Do you believe that? I say to you, do you believe that? That's the witness of God, God's testimony to you and to me. Eternal life is also knowing God the Father and the Son. That's Jesus in John 17 3. This is the eternal life that you might know me and the only true God, or that you might know the only true God and, and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. Verse 12, he who has the son has the life. Do you have the son this morning? you have life? Has life, not we'll get it. That's, That's comforting to me. That's encouraging to me. That's life to me. And I hope and I pray that it is to you as well. Conversely, end of verse 12. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Christianity is an exclusive offer. But it's not exclusionary. It's exclusive. There's only one way, through Jesus. But it's not exclusionary. It's not only rich people. It's not only uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant people. It's not only people from Mali. It's not only people from South America. It's not only people from Asia. It's not only people who wear certain clothes or who drive certain cars, who think certain thoughts or have certain political affiliations. It's open to all who believe. So, That's the testimony of God. There's this water that Jesus went into. There is this blood that Jesus shed. And there is this spirit that God sent to testify. And what are we going to do with that? Are we going to reject or receive? Reject it leads to death. Receive it leads to life. Now, you know, some of you are skeptics. Some of you are cynics. Some of you are deniers. Some of you are doubters. I get that. So disprove the resurrection. That's my challenge to you. He died and he rose again. You disprove the resurrection, you demolish Christianity. You disprove the the crucifixion. That Jesus went through the waters of baptism. Consider the witness. Just at least, you know, there's three things screaming at you. There's three things screaming at believers. That should be solidify and strengthen our faith. It should challenge those who are skeptics. At least think about it. What do we have to do to confirm it? We saw that last week. We just believe, obey and love. And love is obedience in action. John says at the end of his gospel. These signs, Jesus did, and many more could be written. There's many other signs, therefore Jesus also performed. But these have been written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and believing you might have life in his name. I remember... Marla and I were in downtown Budapest visiting a, a friend of ours. And uh, you want to show that picture of... Uh, yeah, there you go. This is the Heat the or the chain bridge which crosses from uh, the Danube River from Budapest, thus Budapest. And we were supposed to travel back to our hotel which was in the suburbs out by the airport which was a long ways away. And this gal gave us specific instructions. We could receive her instructions And be safely back at our destination. Or we could reject her instructions. And who knows what would happen. Most of it not good. So here we are this morning. We can reject Jesus. By ignoring God's testimony. Or we can receive Jesus. By accepting God's testimony. You reject it. It leads to death. And destitute. Destruction You receive it, leads to life and peace and purpose. Not hunky-dory, everything's wonderful, huh? pie-in-the-sky stuff. No, anybody would tell you that's not true. But it leads to a solid anchor that sets us through. And when we come through on the other side, we're with the Lord in glory. And there's no better place. And as we think about the baptism and the crucifixion, And the Spirit's witness, they confirm it. In his humanity, he served as our perfect sacrifice. In his deity, his death paid the price that those who believe, would, if they accept it, it pays the debt that you owe so that you would be received. And as we celebrate communion, that's what this does. It reminds us of what Christ did as the payment for our sins. It is, number one, a declaration of those who are children of God. I believe it. I believe the God's witness. It is also not only a declaration, but it is a delight to know that God has brought me into his family. And it is also our desire that you are, if you're here this morning and you're not trusting Christ, that you would turn from your sin and trust in Christ and accept the witness of God about the testimony of the person and the work of Jesus because he is the only way. And you can do that just by simply saying, you know, I know I'm messed up. I know I deserve to die. I trust what Jesus did as the payment for my sin, and I accept him now as my Lord and Savior. And I would encourage you to do that in the quietness before you come to take the elements. And if you've done that, then just spend some time reflecting. Everyone here who is trusting Christ is welcome to partake of these elements. But they are symbols, symbols only of Christ's body broken and his blood shed. And while the, uh, the praise team leads in song, I invite you to examine your own heart and confess your sin and then come and celebrate declaring his goodness, delighting in his goodness. In Jesus' name, we will pray. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your testimony concerning your Son as the only way through whom we may gain life and life eternal. That we might live, surrender to, and serve, and sing praises to the Almighty God, our Father, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords, His Son, and the Spirit who does the work within us, we pray in Jesus' name.